Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. When he was diagnosed with metastatic colorectal carcinoma, Trevor Maxwell took himself into his man cave. Through the love and support of his wife and children, he eventually emerged from that cave and has gone on to help many others who similarly are deeply affected by this diagnosis, here to tell us all that he's learned over those five years is Trevor Maxwell. Trevor Maxwell, you're a man and you develop the symptoms of cancer. How did you respond and how did it then unfold for you? I just want to first say quickly, thank you so much for having me. Like I never imagined having global conversations around cancer, especially when I was diagnosed almost five years ago. So I've been living with stage four colorectal cancer for almost five years. I was diagnosed in March of 2018. And just to get the Cliff's notes out of the way for your listeners, so a little bit of my dossier. So I've, I've done five major abdominal surgeries, one clinical trial, more than 50 rounds of chemotherapy, immunotherapy. So I've been in the trenches for quite a while. And I continue to be in the trenches almost five years in. I'm so grateful to still be here with my family. I have a wonderful wife. We have two wonderful teenage daughters who were 12 and 10 when I was diagnosed and are now 17 and 15. And so to be here for these years as they grow older has just been the most joyous thing that I I could ever imagine. I'm so thankful for that. That does tie into your question around being a man and being a a husband and, and a father going through this experience. Because when I was diagnosed that spring of 2018 into the summer, my identity was really crushed. I always identified as a a reliable husband and father and and a co-provider with my wife as just leading the family. And then all of a sudden I was thrust into a very scary, unfamiliar role of the cancer patient and everything that that entails. And for me, it it was like a life asteroid. You know, I was 41 years old. I I was going along through my life. And all of a sudden, all the stories that I had ever told myself about my place in the world, my my longevity, what I was having my kids grow up and, and seeing their kids someday, you know, all of a sudden, all of that is very much in jeopardy. And it's, it's very right in my face. And so my, my first response was physiological shock, like legitimate shock for a a short period. And then soon after that, I went into a mental health crisis, depression, anxiety, crippling isolation. I was one of these guys who absolutely did check out. I, I went into my man cave and I was just wounded. I was like a wounded animal because nothing made sense to me anymore. So all of my roles were suddenly challenged and I didn't know how to cope with that. And I was thrust into a a very scary world of surgeries and chemotherapy and language and medical stuff that I had no control over or, or understanding of. And it was a very exposed, vulnerable place to be. As I looked for around, like, you know, you start looking around, like, how to go through this. And, and there's lots of content for cancer patients. There's a glut of content for cancer patients, but there's very little that is specifically tailored to uh, from a man's perspective. So let's say by a man, for a man, 
you can find lots of stuff, lots of content in Cancerland that is by women for women or by women for a co-ed audience. But there is a lack of male voices speaking about the male experience and what that might look like and how di- how that might be different. And there just wasn't much that I was finding. I was a 41-year-old. I had been very healthy, living a healthy life before diagnosis. And then my world got turned upside down while I was raising two young daughters and, and married to my wife, Sarah, here in, in Maine in the United States. And so just looking back on that almost five years ago, I, it, it was it's almost like looking back at a different person, right? I want to go to Trevor as he was at 41. The life asteroid has hit. You've developed symptoms. You, you're about to go into this man cave. Your world is turned upside down. Your whole identity has been destroyed effectively by what you have framed as this experience. How was that news broken to you? Because re- in healthcare, we're really interested in, in helping people through the journey. And the first point is the point at which somebody tells you the eagle has landed. There's a disaster here. <laughs> what was that like? My primary tumor was on the, the right side of my large intestine. Where that tumor was, it wasn't causing like blood in my stool. I didn't even feel pain. So really my only symptom leading up to my diagnosis was intensifying fatigue. And it was the type of fatigue where we heat with wood in our house here in Maine. And it would be no problem for me to do a a whole afternoon of lugging wood from the barn to the house and feel great about that. And then eventually through 2017 into 2018, I would notice that I would just get tired. Like I'd get winded and then eventually it got worse and worse. But I, for a long time, I just chalked it up as life. I had hit 40, had two young kids. I was a self-employed communications consultant, public relations consultant. And I just thought it was mental health plus hitting 40. So months went by, but ultimately it got to the fatigue, got to the point where I would climb a, a set of stairs and just be out of completely out of breath. So finally, I called my primary care physician. I ha- I had not been in to see a doctor in a, quite a while. Like a lot of men, you know, I, I didn't have any concerns. I wasn't getting checkups. By the time I went in to see the primary care physician and got my blood work done, I was iron deficient anemic. So almost no iron in my blood. And my primary care physician said, we need to get you in for a colonoscopy ASAP because you must be losing blood somewhere and had a colonoscopy. But even then, when I met the gastroenterologist who did the colonoscopy, he looked at me, strapping guy, and he's like, you know, maybe you have, you know, maybe this is celiac, maybe this is polyps, you know, he's like, there has to be an explanation. And then after that colonoscopy, we got pulled into his office and the mood had shifted. <laughs> you, you know, that doctor's look when they're about to tell you something really not good. And he said, you have a, about a nine to 10 centimeter mass in your ascending colon. We're going to send out, we took multiple samples. We're going to send it off to biopsy and pathology, but I need to hook you up with a surgical oncologist (laughs) and started using those words. And and he didn't say it right. Like he he didn't say you have cancer, but he was using all these words like oncology. and, And I, I looked at him and I said, are you saying that I have cancer? 
And he said, without getting the pathology back, I can't tell you for certain, but 99% certain that you have colon cancer. And that was March 22nd, 2018. And my wife and I went back to the car and we couldn't speak for a good 10, 15 minutes. We just looked at each other in, in stunned silence. And then our, the first thing we did say was, how are we going to tell our daughters? It sounds like a, a horrible experience. Looking back at the point where the primary care doctor says you're iron deficient, we need to do a colonoscopy. How straight did you think he, you wanted him to be? Did you want him to say, look, mate, you've got iron deficiency, you've got cancer, that's the C word, let's get on and deal with it? Or would you have preferred to have been eased into that conversation? And it sounds like they were pretty straight talking once they did a colonoscopy. But at, at the point at which there was a suspicion something was wrong, how would you have liked that to have been handled? I would have liked things to be handled absolutely straight up and, and they were, but here's the thing is that my primary care physician who is actually a family friend of ours and there was no other red flags, right? And there was no early onset cancer that we knew of in my family. So even the iron deficiency anemia didn't take us to that place of thinking like, oh, you probably have cancer. Like no one was thinking that until the colonoscopy, until that diagnostic test. So it was more along the lines of like, yeah, we, we need to rule some things out. Like there's something going on, Trevor, but she's, she definitely didn't jump to that, to any conclusion around cancer. And really there was no reason to. And since that diagnosis now, of course, looking back, I have been diagnosed with Lynch syndrome, which is a genetic predisposition to cancer, sometimes early onset, but the particular variant of Lynch syndrome that I have in my family is not very penetrant. So I didn't have a bunch of people around me in my family that were getting cancer. I knew that my grandparents had colon cancer, but that was in their seventies. So being 41, there was really no reason for me to screen early. And the young onset colon cancer is now, now that I've learned about it and I see the rates, a person born in 1990 has twice the risk of colon cancer and four times the risk of rectal cancer versus a person born in 1950. And there's tons of theories out there, but there's nothing, there's no consensus around why this is happening. In fact, it's happening in multiple cultures with different foods and, and different things going on. But we know it's happening and we see younger and younger people, and we know that I had Lynch syndrome, which set me up for it, but we don't know those other genomic factors that might have triggered my cancer. So now that I've learned about these trends, I could have looked back and said, well, having history in the family, maybe I could have done something sooner. That's why the guidelines have been dropped in the United States from screening at age 50 to screening at age 45 is because of that uptick in younger people developing colorectal cancer. But of course, I didn't know any of this at the time. I, I couldn't even really reliably tell you where my colon was. I knew that it had something to do with my digestion, but I, I didn't even know it was my large intestine. So I was starting at a very, like most people, with a low medical baseline of your digestive system when you're 41 years old. What you're describing is increasingly common in that we are now beginning to recognize 
conditions, some common, some rare that appear and present an awful surprise for the medical profession as much as it does for the patient. And what I'm trying to get at is you're a man, you are, from what you're describing, very typical man in the sense that you hadn't been to a doctor before the age of 40, you were fit and well, you were busy chopping wood and fetching and carrying and doing all the things. That's, that's right. So when doctors are presented with a situation where they are going to be breaking bad news, and increasingly that, as you're saying, is, is not an uncommon experience, how best to do that? You had your wife with you, you went in the car, you sat down in silence and you planned your next move. For some men, they would have gone in, probably alone, come out and sat in their car and, and then what? So that is a, that's an excellent point. And that's a theme of my whole story. For someone who was diagnosed with cancer, metastatic cancer at age 41 with younger children, I've been a very lucky person. And the reason I'm so lucky is my family and my friends and my community. I am well aware that like, so having a wife who has supported me through this entire thing, um, who's given me the tough love at times that I've needed, I, I wouldn't be alive without my wife, Sarah, and our daughter, Sage and Elsie. I definitely wouldn't be here. So I very well could have been that man who was on his own and went out to the car alone and then just kind of went into the man cave and disappeared. But I had people that loved me enough that, that wouldn't let me do that. So yes, very lucky to have people around me to love me through this experience. And that has been a, a theme. And I'm well aware that many men don't have that kind of support system in place. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. How does the healthcare profession respond to men knowing what what you and I have just said? The response was pretty good. You know, I have a really great local oncology practice. I have a great local oncologist. I had good surgeons. You know, I, I've had great medical care, but I guess the, the theme that I will go talk about here is just mental health and your emotional well-being. Emotional well-being is still an afterthought in the, in, in the apparatus that is the, the medical industrial complex. And by that, I mean, they are very focused on the tumors that are inside you and what medicines or surgeries are going to help free you from, from your tumor burden. But for those of us who struggle, I've been through five very large surgeries, all the chemo, everything else. I've gone through some physical stuff, right? But none of that holds a, can touch the emotional burden that I've been carrying. And so I guess I just want to say that I dream of a, a world and I believe in a world where emotional well-being is considered just as important as the physical treatment of our cancer. And that is something that takes a village. <laughs> it doesn't usually happen inside the walls of the hospitals or inside the oncologist's office because of many, many pressures on, on all of those providers. For example, my oncology visits are, are generally on 15-minute schedules. There are many, many patients who need care, and we spend every one of those 15 minutes and then, then some 
solving the problem of the physical disease. And so if I'm going to work on my emotional burden and my emotional health, it, it has to be in lots of other places, usually, unless you're a, a very lucky patient who can have that all done at one center. But I guess what I'm getting at is when I was going through my mental health pit of despair, which lasted probably six to eight months, the first six to eight months of my cancer journey went to some pretty dark places. My will to live was was very low. I basically just got through because of my kids and my wife. And we all need to come together to acknowledge the the emotional burden that comes with this disease and to make sure that those supports, whatever they look like, are taken seriously and, and put up front. And I'm not saying anyone let me down or, or failed in my particular case. I just know what my experience was and trying to piece together my mental health supports. Thank goodness I had community and friends and family around me to help me do that because I'm not sure if I would have recovered from my, I recovered from my mental health challenges, but it took me reaching out for help and going to different places to get that help. And I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been prompted mostly by my wife. So emotional health around cancer is a subject that I'm really passionate about. And it's a conversation that needs to be ongoing. I'm not here to give you like a list of five things to make emotional health front and center in the, in the treatment of cancer. And I think we're getting there. Like as you can probably weigh in more on this from like the global perspective is I think there are more conversations than ever around cancer and mental health. But again, I don't see very many men. That was part of the reason why I do what I do now is that I, we need male role models who are out there speaking about the emotional burden and what the tools are that we use so that other men can see that and know, because I thought when I was in that pit, when I was going through that crippling anxiety and depression, I was overcome with shame because I felt like I was failing at it. I felt like I was doing it wrong, that all these other guy patients out there must have everything going on because all the images and, and all the things you see about male cancer patients in the press or in the in books, in popular culture, everyone's just crushing cancer. They're running 5Ks and they're raising money and they're working full time. And I was a mess. And the shame of like being a mess was that made it even worse. So I've learned that I'm not the only man to struggle with the mental health piece of it, with the emotional piece of cancer. But at the time I didn't know, I thought, I thought I was just, it was just me and that I was all alone. Part of the big reason of why I do what I do now to encourage men going through cancer is because I know what it felt like to feel that alone and feel like I was failing. I do think those conversations are happening. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of leading this movement where men feel comfortable to talk about their experiences, to share about their experiences with cancer, not just the physical stuff and not just the triumphs, but the slogging through the muck and the blood and the, you know, going to those bottom places and still being able to get through that. There's a man who is well supported, as in Trevor Maxwell, and many other men who have that support, which is wonderful. There are men who are not well supported and who have not only to carry the burden of cancer, which even for Trevor Maxwell is a heavy burden, but they do it on their own, which is even worse in some ways. 
For me, right. the journey began at the point at which you developed iron deficiency anemia and you were going in for that colonoscopy. And I accept that yours was a great experience. However, for many others, it isn't. Because once you enter the machinery of healthcare, as you say, the technical side takes over and the 15 minutes are then spent unpacking all of the potential treatments and their side effects and whatever else. And I exactly. do wonder whether we let medicine off the hook a little bit easy by saying your job is to be a, a technician and to fix. In fact, the job of medicine is to heal, and part of that healing involves seeing that person within the context of their lives and, and giving just as much attention to both things and being preventative in the sense of saying, I know you don't, I know that you're not married or I know that you, you're, you're not happily married or your situation is difficult and we're making this, we're giving you this burden to carry, but there's help out there and this is how we can get that help to you. Is that how you would frame it? In Western medicine, in the, in the apparatus here, the machinery, it is very technology focused. It is very novel science focused. So like, what's the new thing? What are the new drugs? What are the new treatments? What are the new surgeries? It's very focused on the physical. And I think conversations are happening to talk about holistic wellness and talk about the importance of that for a number of reasons and to integrate. I just think it's going to take quite a while. And I think it's going to be the patients, the patient to patient movement that leads in that area. It's not going to be the machine. You can't wait for the machine to, to adapt to the needs you have now because by that time, many generations are going to be gone. It's going to be the patients who bring new solutions and, and new supports. And that patient-to-patient -patient movement is real. I'm part of it. I'm in it. And I believe in it. You are living this experience. And part of our conversation here is exploring your experience, not just with cancer, but with a, as a man with cancer, which is a quite a different thing from what you're saying. And I, I accept what you're saying. A lot of the research I've done has fully endorsed the view that you're taking. That for a right. man developing cancer, the experience may be very different. In fact, it is very different than it is for anyone else. And I want to go to that in a little bit of detail now. In the sense that you talked about going into the man care, you know you've been there, you've walked on that piece of carpet in that room. <laughs> right. For, for that man who's receiving that diagnosis, and supposing they don't have the supports that you had, what are the four or five things that we need to be aware of so that we don't drop the ball? Here's, here's one thing that we all need to know. We all need to know that Men, just as much as women, struggle with a cancer diagnosis, period. The one thing that I want people to really understand is that men struggle in just the same ways as women in terms of this emotional burden, this life asteroid that, that hits you, but they are far less likely to engage in supports that, that could help them. So there are some studies out there showing that men actually have higher rates of anxiety, depression, mental health challenges when going through cancer because of this. So I think of cultural conditioning, right? This is the whole idea that when a, when a challenge comes along in your life, the typical Western man is told to man up, saddle up, be tough. You don't need to burden others with it. 
this is something you should face on your own and something you can face on your own. And this is like an old school way of thinking, right? This rugged individualism, which inherently is not a negative thing. <laughs> but with cancer, unfortunately, it is. And we'll get into that. But this idea, being isolated in cancer is a killer. Unfortunately, because of our cultural conditioning, we are taught as men to isolate when something comes along that, that seems like it's a, a threat or a problem, like we can handle it. So I guess the, the first premise I want to sort of get people to come on the same page with is that men aren't engaging in cancer support communities or in resources at nearly the rate of women are. And that's not because we don't need them. It's because we're too proud or scared or ashamed or embarrassed to look like we're weak. Men don't want to seem like they're weak or vulnerable, and they definitely don't want to show that in co-ed spaces. So that is all stuff that I've learned along the way. And not just from me, you know, just in talking to hundreds of male cancer patients and talking to psychologists who work with male cancer patients. And so we know that the need is there, but we know they're not in those spaces. And that became very clear to me. I started reaching out for help because my wife, my wife basically forced me to. She's like, you need to get better. I don't care if you live another year or another 40 years. We need you to be engaged and out of your man cave and like with us, raising your kid, being the Trevor that we know who is not, I'm not an inward person. I'm not an isolated person. I'm a social person. I love my kids and life and everything else. But with cancer, I just, I kind of just went in that cave and I didn't know what to do. But I had, again, I had that person who was like, you need help. And so the first barrier that I overcame through my family was accepting help. And then as I reached out into those places, so online, wonderful support people facing the same. I met dozens of people going through the same exact cancer I was, very similar diagnoses, people with kids. So I started engaging those communities. I started going to the Dempsey Center here in Maine, which was founded by Patrick Dempsey, where I get free counseling, individual counseling, group counseling, classes on nutrition, exercise, all that stuff. And it's all free, all free, right? And it's everywhere I go in those spaces, I call it the three to one rule. Usually it's three women to every one man. So at least 75% of these spaces are female. And again, people might be thinking, well, what's the issue? Um, women are just, they're going to seek support more. Like, okay, men are just in their man caves. The problem is men do need the help. They just don't feel comfortable often accessing those systems that are available to them out of those reasons we just discussed. So I think when you're asking about what should we know, like we should know that men are struggling with cancer and we need to think about meeting them where they are. And asking those questions, why why aren't they comfortable in those spaces? Why is it 75% to 25%? Why is it that when I saw a photo or photos from cancer conferences, colorectal cancer conferences, so to start out, colorectal cancer is pretty much around 55, 53 to 55% male, 45 to 47% female. It's pretty even, but people think of it as a male male disease. It's not. And, but you see these photos from these conferences and it'll be 20 women and maybe two guys in the back. And you think, so not, it's not a quite, and this is why it matters. 
It's not just like fluffy. This matters because if, if men are in their man caves and they are not participating in these resources and this patient to patient movement, then they are missing out on learning. They are, they, they're not learning about second opinions. They're not learning about treatment options. They are not learning about tri clinical trials. And so that was when the click is just really clicking in my head. I was like, first of all, we know that if you isolate with cancer, you have a higher risk of dying sooner. You have a higher risk of, of substance abuse, lots of bad mental health stuff, and you have worse medical outcomes. This is shown across the board. Your outcomes are worse if you're in isolation. So it's not a trivial question here. It's, it's not just like, oh, well, men just don't participate in groups or resources like women. Well, okay, let's explore that. Why is that? And let's, let's try to, to reach those people who are out there and need that help. And that's my lane. That's become my lane as a cancer advocate. I knew I wanted to be a patient leader. I knew I wanted to advocate for others with cancer. I just didn't know what it was. But then as I saw this three to one aspect everywhere I went, that was the question that triggered me to really do this work that I do, which was, where are the men at? I know they're out there hurting. What can we do to reach them and help them? The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, Amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Yeah, you did get there, Trevor. I've got the five points here. I'm going to read them back to you. The first is there's more anxiety and depression, and potentially substance abuse, if you're a man in certain circumstances, in many circumstances, with a diagnosis of cancer. Secondly, that because of cultural conditioning, you're not going to accept help. You're going to want to try and do it on your own. Thirdly, you don't know what to do. Then there's the whole issue of online communities, the fact that there is help there and it's freely available. And finally, that the men with this condition do not know about their options. They don't do their homework in the way that another patient might. And therefore, they have potentially got worse outcomes. There are your five points. I do it because I think that if I were an oncologist or I were, in fact, I'm a primary care physician, I am going to have these right. on the wall where I can see them clearly. So I'm not just making a diagnosis of pathology, organic pathology. I'm making a diagnosis of organic pathology in a particular context. And when I see your list of five points, I know that my treatment has to include adjunct measures to ensure that these things are addressed. You know, one of my first cancer friends got diagnosed. He's down in Florida. He goes to his, a family, person in his family recommends an oncologist at, at, a, at a small center. He goes and the oncologist kind of just throws up his hand and says, you know what? I'm sorry you have this. I'm going to put you on some chemo, but you should get your affairs in order. It's going to be the end for you. And I talked to my friend. I said, so did you get a second opinion? And some of the things he said to me were, well, this is a family friend and, and I don't want to offend him because he, you know, I don't want to offend this person, this doctor by asking for a second opinion from someone. And, and secondly, he's an oncologist. I'm sure he knows everything that's happening with, with my cancer compared to any other oncologist. These are some of the assumptions that m men I hear <laughs> often make, which are false. And those are the kind of assumptions that we need to tackle. So I'll give you a positive example. Someone in our Facebook group, same thing, diagnosed, told his, said he's six months maybe to live, 
get your affairs in order, and we'll put you on some chemo. Then through Colon Town, uh, one of the fantastic online, pretty much my go-to place for science and treatment information around colorectal cancer, he learned what was happening with the HAI, hepatic arterial infusion pump at Sloan Kettering in New York City, went for a second opinion, and he is now, I think, 18 months NED, no evidence of disease, just by getting that one second opinion and going to a center and, and then making a choice that he wanted to do that. So I'll give you those two contrasting stories to tell you that, so people like Mike, my friend who got involved in Colon Town and started learning about his options, the empowerment that you can get there, it can extend your life. It can save your life. And these are the conversations that if you're just in your man cave, you're not going to see, you're going to miss out on. Yeah, there's your sixth point. Men don't want to make a fuss. And I do wonder whether, in fact, we don't speak the right language. Because if you say to the same guy, look, if there's something wrong with your truck, and some guy says to you, oh, I've had a look, you need to take it to the scrapyard, you're going to scratch your head and you're going, is there another mechanic here in this place that can fix my car? You're almost saying to the man, this is not your territory. We are the experts. Go away. It's when the reality is that it is no different from another problem that you may have in your life. All you've got to do is get the guy to start thinking as the problem-solving person that he is. 100% spot on. I'm not even going to elaborate on that. We can move on because that's it. It's, it's a language. It, it's, yeah, it's like you're going to get opinions for all those different things in your life. You're going to research the heck out of it. But then something like cancer comes along and you just throw up your hands and say, you know, hey, doctor tells me I'm done, you know. Yeah, and part of that, to be fair to the guys, is that they're thinking, I failed. This is shameful. I've let everybody down. I don't have the energy to make a cup of tea. I can't bring the wood in from the yard. I can't, whatever else I can't, I can't. But what they're not appreciating is that the Trevor is still inside them and still able to do it. If only the person who's speaking to them would encourage them in the way that Trevor knows he can be encouraged, which is by talking a language that he understands. And you're talking about the problem-solving mentality, right? And, and it's overwhelming. So with cancer, it's not like a, a, a do-it-yourself home project where you can YouTube some stuff and go fix something on your own, right? It, it is a cataclysmic medical and emotional <laughs> event in your life. And you need supports for that. They may look different to different people, but you absolutely need supports to navigate it. And again, I don't know what my journey would have looked like if I had not had those family and community supports to encourage me to go get that help. Because I do what I do now. Like I founded Man Up to Cancer because I had love and people around me to get me to the right other people who could help me. I needed... There's probably 50 people in my life who have helped me over the past almost five years with, without whom I would not be the Trevor that I am today. But it took work and reaching out and networking and understanding that I couldn't solve this problem on my own and getting over the shame of that and all that stuff. Like <laughs> it just it took a lot to happen to get me to this point. And I guess I'm trying to make it a little bit easier for those next round of guys. Like I want them to 
listen to my podcast or join our group or, or like, and just understand like what I'm trying to do is when we get cancer as men, it's almost like you get this yoke. You're like an ox and you have this giant yoke on you and it's super, super heavy. And you're thinking, maybe I can't even make it to the other side of that field. And what man up to cancer is, is saying, let us carry this together. Let us carry this, this weight together and, and we can help each other through it. And when you get tired, you can take a break. And, and so, and that's where the wolf pack mentality came from. Like my entire man up to cancer mission is surrounded by the wolf theme and the wolf motif, which is, that is a pack concept. The, the pack survives, the lone wolf dies. And, and the, that is very true for what I see with cancer is that you need to have your pack. You need to have the people who will, the wolves around you who will go as a pack. And if you're off the back, if you're sick, if you're hurt, then they're going to surround you. They're not just going to leave you there alone. So that's why the wolf and the wolf pack structure really appeals to me is that why aren't we like that as American men? Like American men have never gone into combat by themselves. They've never gone, they've never built a building by themselves. They, they've never taken on any project worth doing in isolation. Yet when cancer comes along, all of a sudden we think we're supposed to just not burden anyone. Just, I can handle this. I understand the instinct because I've been there. But now I've learned that we are so much stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. And that's what I talk about all the time. And that's your seventh point in that this is a global phenomenon. It's not just the American man. It's also the Australian man. It's the UK man. It's men in many, mm. many other countries who take exactly the same view of their illness and their self image as being damaged in some way because they've got some, yes. a diagnosis what you've proved and what men around the world are proving is that whether they make it or not through the illness, they are the magnificent creature that they always thought they were. They are still men uh. and they are still performing as men in every aspect of their lives. You can live absolutely a engaged, fulfilling, joyous, pur purposeful life while living with cancer, regardless of the outcome. And it took me a long time to learn that and to, and now that's part of my message is that people get hung up so much on the outcome. If you don't make it, if you don't survive long-term, then somehow you've failed. The truth is we know men who have done everything quote unquote, right. They diet, nutrition, all the right surgeries, all the right treatments, um, complementary medicine, like everything. And they still die of cancer because that's what cancer is. It's a lethal disease. <laughs> and so to take away that shame and stigma around whether you make it or not, what, we're, we're, what I'm trying to do and what our role models are trying to put out there is there is life to be had and you can thrive with this disease. But it, it does take that group. I believe I firmly believe that you cannot do that isolated. I think that's the ideal place for us to stop at this point because it says everything that you needed to say. It sends out the message that you are not alone and that we in healthcare, I think in particular, owe it to you and to men generally to see the context in which we make that diagnosis and to respond to people in the way that actually speaks to them because in fact you then see them flourish.
Yes. And I want to say that this culturally, it's an interesting moment to have that realization, right? That like with a man to consider the background of this man who comes in and maybe he considers himself a provider. That, that's how he defines himself. But we're in 2022 where traditionally, quote unquote, traditionally masculine traits of assertiveness, um, leadership, being that kind of guy's guy, like a little bit um, rough and tough around the edges is looked at sometimes, oftentimes is looked at with scorn or those are qualities that we shouldn't aspire to. But I'm in 2022, we need to meet men where they're at. And there's many, many men out there who very much identify as with some with traditionally masculine traits to not meet them where they're at, to just pretend we live in a world where there's no gender anymore and there's no difference between the sexes is wrong. And that's turning a blind eye to the reality that's in the trenches and on the ground, that there is very much a difference And we don't even need to talk about biology or culture or how those things play out. We know from science in terms of sociology, we know that behaviors are different based on gender. And I'm not talking, you know, I I feel like I have to put an asterisk on everything. Like we're not talking about every man with cancer or every woman with cancer. They're everyone's individual, but there are patterns based on gender. There are patterns of response based on gender. And this is not just Trevor talking about it. There's, you know, you've already mentioned it. There's plenty of science to back this up. So I feel like, yes, it would be wonderful if we lived in a world where there wouldn't need to be spaces for men or spaces for women, but there are. And there are absolutely important spaces that are women to women. There are important spaces that are men to men, just as there has always been since the dawn of mankind. And that's okay. And that's healthy. I feel like some providers are hesitant to, put that little cheat sheet, like, Hey, well, you have a guy from this blue collar background and he may be apt to behave in this way, which is different. That's okay. That's meeting a man where he's at. And so I appreciate you recognizing that. You can define yourself as however you wish. Healthcare is for everyone and responds in a way that celebrates those differences, not tries to force them back down your throat. And in fact, would be failing if it were trying to do all of that. Trevor Maxwell, it's been a joy spending time with you today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. You are offering us an insight, which is crucial. As you say, increasingly young people are developing this disease and many other diseases. And we need to think and think hard as we approach every individual person about where they're at and respond to them the way they would like to be responded to. It's been an honor. You've given me goosebumps multiple times by our interaction, which is always a wonderful feeling. Um, Thank you so much for having me on. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.